You know how we all have that one friend or that one person that we go to when we're having a specific problem because you know that they are going to have the answer and the experience to help you resolve that problem faster than you could ever do so on your own? Well, that is exactly why I agreed to become the editor of Homestead Living Magazine because I know that I have certain friends like Carolyn Thomas from Homesteading Family that when I am dealing with an issue, I can just pick up the phone and give Carolyn a call. But even though Carolyn and I both know a lot about homesteading, there's things that even neither she nor I know. So I banded together all of my homesteading peers and I'm the editor of Homestead Living Magazine. Now, some of you have already gotten your copy, but for many of you, because it's a brand new magazine that we just launched this past spring, you might not know about it. It is a quarterly digital publication offering the very best insights from the modern homesteading movement. This is a publication that is for homesteaders, written by homesteaders, no staff writers. It's wisdom from the past, advice for today, as well as hope for tomorrow. Not only will you find articles with, of course, how-tos and tutorials covering different aspects of homesteading, but you're also going to find pieces that really go beyond just the practical into the mindset and into how do you actually homestead for the long haul without burning yourself out, how to pace yourself, and how to deal with so many of the different things that come our way when we are homesteading. So go to homesteadliving.com forward slash Melissa to get your edition. Hey, pioneers, welcome to episode number 385. Today, we are going to be talking about heirloom apples as well as historic varieties, how apples shaped America. While many of us are familiar with Johnny Appleseed, especially if you are around my age and watch the Disney cartoon, Johnny Appleseed, you have a little bit of the story, but actually the true Johnny Appleseed character or man who was not a character, was an actual person, is very, very fascinating on what he did with apples and how apples helped to shape the settling of America and how apples were used as one of our food sources in ways that are quite different from how we see apples today. So if you are at all a history geek in any way, shape, or form, you are going to love this episode. You're going to nerd out with us just a little bit. But also, if you are looking at bringing in apple varieties to your homestead and or farm, you're going to find this episode extremely informational and helpful as you select those varieties. And also, perhaps you will be helping keep some of those historic varieties alive. So we'll go into detail on how you'll be able to do that. And I am thrilled to have on today's podcast episode a very special guest who is going to be walking us through that. And speaking of heritage items, today's podcast is sponsored by American Blossom Linens. American Blossom Linens has amazing products made in the USA that are made with 100% organic 
Cotton. And I have to tell you, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you've probably heard me poetically wax about these sheets, but they truly are heritage quality. They are made to last, they wash well, and they are the softest, most comfortable sheets we have ever had on our bed. And not only do they make sheets, but they also have the American-made cotton duvet cover sets. They have towels and American-made cotton herringbone weave blankets. And I tell you, even though we're in spring and we're starting to move towards summer when we don't typically use blankets as much, I have had my eye on the herringbone weave blanket for months now. My biggest problem is I just can't decide which color that I actually want to get for the blanket. But even in summertime, we'll still have mornings that are pretty cool here on the homestead. And I find I still like to have a throw in the morning when I'm sipping my coffee. So I have a feeling that my next purchase from this line will be one of the herringbone weave blankets. And the good news is if you decide to go and check out their products and grab yourself some, use coupon code PIONEERINGTODAY20. That's PIONEERINGTODAY20 for 20% off your order. I am thrilled to introduce you today to Nikki. Nikki Conley, along with her husband, Eric, and their two daughters, established Athel Orchards, which is an antique apple farm. In autumn of 2016, they settled in the mountains east of Athel, North Idaho. They were seeking land where they could establish the lifelong dreams of having self-sufficiency, a genuine childhood for their girls, and the storied life of a traditional American farmer. What is really amazing is Athel Orchards not only grows apples for all kinds of different purposes, both genetic diversity and characteristics that simply don't exist within the modern apple industry, because they are doing the ancient and the heritage varieties of apples. They are a teaching farm as well as a farm that perpetuates and breeds, well, breeding is, you'll see as we get into this episode, that's kind of um, not exactly the right term that I should be using for how they are producing and keeping these antique historical apple varieties thriving. But they have a orchard school program throughout the different seasons. So they teach apple grafting 101, domesticated and native pollinators, beekeeping 101, as well as an autumn orchard tour. And these are just some of the workshops that they teach and allow aspiring homesteaders to gain knowledge and experience needed to establish their own orchards in a very self-sustaining and holistic way. And I first learned of Nikki because she is going to be teaching apple grafting and heritage hands-on demonstration and class at this year's Modern Homesteading Conference. And as I started to learn more about their orchard and get to know Nikki, she you'll hear in this episode how they're going to be involved with our VIP dinner and just different things that they were doing on their farm and in their orchard. I was very very intrigued and I really wanted to talk to her a lot more, which is why I brought her on the podcast so that you guys could get a chance to learn more things from her as well. And hopefully you will join us at the Modern Homesteading Conference as well so that you can go even deeper. 
But this is a conversation that I have been waiting to have, as you will hear in part of the, the questions that I'm asking Nikki in this interview. There is very much a apple tree that is very, very old on our original homestead, and I wanted to learn how I could get that tree a cutting from it in order to have it on our homestead so that we don't lose that variety that came from the homestead where my dad grew up on. So if you want to go check out any of the things that we are talking about or read more and look at this in a written blog post format, you can do so by heading over to melissaknorris.com forward slash 385. That's just the number numerical 385 because this is episode number 385. So without further ado, let's get to this interview. Well, Nikki, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you. I am really, really, really excited. My voice goes high when I get excited or talk to infants of any species. Um, (laughs) Very, very excited for today's episode. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. And I am really excited to learn more about this and bring awareness as well. So what technically, I know with heirloom seeds, when we're talking like annual vegetable production or flowers, the definition for it to be called heirloom is open pollinated and has to have been in existence where it's traceable back to at least about 50 years. That's kind of the general thing. But when, but when we're talking fruit trees, is there a different definite, what constitutes it being a heritage variety, I guess, is what I should say. Well, in my humble opinion, from what I've learned, I, I've learned everything I know from, I call them the old timers, which I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you know, I, I didn't actually go to school or college about apples. I've learned just by reading and talking to uh, a lot of people, mostly back East, because that's where a lot of the apple history, obviously in our country stems from and originated from. So when we talk about heritage varieties or heirloom varieties of apples, since that's what I specialize in, the heirlooms are more of our ancestors' apples. These are the apples that were not really cultivated just to put in a nursery so people could plant a couple of apple trees at home and you know be able to throw an apple in their lunch or from time to time maybe make an apple pie. Um, the heirloom varieties were so very prized in their time because unlike modern times where, like I said, you can go into a grocery store and, you know, maybe choose from the Granny Smiths or the Cosmic Crisps. That is what um, the older heirloom group of people would call the designer apples. And so the designer apples are naturally the apples that come from the apple industry that are, you know, out in the state of Washington, um, you know, up in the northern Midwest area, Michigan, Wisconsin, places that have these apple growing regions. But, uh, you know, those are modern apples that have been cultivated and, you know, scientifically cultivated through cross-pollination to come to a very specific characteristic of apple that they believe the uh, consumer is going to enjoy. But when you think of the heirloom varieties, the list is is really, really vast. Um, In fact, there is a encyclopedia that I'm pretty sure is still in publication, still in print. And it was written by a gentleman named Daniel J. Bussey. And it's literally a seven volume encyclopedia. And the title is The Illustrated History of Apples in the United States and Canada. So it it basically outlines every heirloom variety that's ever been grown um, in North America and up in Canada. 
and it's seven volumes. So perfect example. um, The first volume, let me just grab it. The first, first volume of Dan's encyclopedia set here. Okay. So A through B would be basically any apple that has a title that begins with an A or a B. So in this one volume, you know, you've got nearly 600 pages and not only does it tell you the origins of these apples, but it tells you the title, what they were grown for, where they were discovered, who discovered it. And the wonderful thing that Dan Bussey also did was he went to the, um, the USDA Agricultural Library. And this agricultural library in our country, back quite a few, you know, 100 years, they've actually been documenting and preserving um, through history anything that's grown in the United States, whether it be vegetables or apples. And in this case, we'd be talking about apples. So back in the early turn of the centuries, you know, early 1900s, late 1800s, the government actually hired these pretty well-known artists to paint watercolor renderings of these apple varieties. And so when you go into these, uh, these volumes that Dan Bussey put together, he has actually got several of those watercolor paintings included in these books. So not only can you read about the origins and the history of, but you can actually see what these apples looked like. And the the watercolor renderings are pretty impressive. I mean, they're just short of looking like photographs. They're beautiful. Um, And in fact, anybody can um, access that agricultural library online to look at those images. They're, they're open to the public and it's, it's basically like public domain. Oh, sweet. We'll, we'll make sure and put a link in the show notes. Cause now I'm very curious to see what they looked like. And part of me, I am just geeky enough. I'm like, Oh, I wonder if you can order prints of them to like frame and just be artwork on the wall. <laughs> oh, I'm, they have them to where you can download the files, but it's only for educational purposes. So I've downloaded various files um, from that agricultural library so that I have those illustrations to show our homesteader, you know, we've got aspiring homesteaders that come out here for workshops to learn about the history of apples. And that way, if I have it in front of them, it makes it a little bit more real to see what it looked like. And that's what really piques their interest is, you know, why don't we see these apples at the grocery store? Um, yeah. Why doesn't anybody sell these? Wh- where did they go? So really, I think when you talk about heirloom apples or heritage apples, it's, it's really the apples of our ancestors. That's the best way that I could describe it. And like I was saying, it wasn't just to have an apple for lunch. It was more for survival. Um, you know, discussing homesteading and modern homesteading. These were the apples that they would preserve or dry. They could feed them to their kids or feed them to their animals. They had specific varieties that they grew strictly for storing or keeping so that they could throw these apples down into their root cellars and have them uh, remain fresh um, and really quite good up until May or June of the following year or even later. So our ancestors that, that grew on the land and, you know, survived by the land, these are the apples that they survived with. Well, and correct me, obviously, if I'm wrong, but also a lot of the heritage varieties that we had too, like, and I, the storage ones, that's really piquing my interest because that's something that we're always looking for varieties and different ways to store food beyond just canning. Now I love canning and Mm -hmm. I love dehydrate, you know, I love all of the forms of food preservation, but I especially love the ones that I don't have to do a whole lot with in order to preserve it. Right. Um, but you had your cider apples too. And that's not something that we think about as much or even see obviously at grocery stores Correct. because it's usually for that fresh eating. Mm-hmm. But 
uh, they did a lot of cider making. You know, there was a lot of drink making and, of course, apple cider. So you had a lot of cider orchards with heritage varieties as well. Like there was all of these, you know, different kind of nuances on, on for how they were going to be using them. And we've just lost so much of that in today's typical grocery store growing production right. mm-hmm. mindset. Well, and when you talk about cider apples, there's a really fascinating history about cider apples in our country because a lot of people, they just think, oh, how nice, you know, we've got apple cider at the store and we drink hot cider, you know, during the holidays and people love to go out and buy hard ciders from local breweries. And what what people don't realize is um, the history of Johnny Appleseed, John Chapman, is actually really important to the history of apples in our country because we kind of don't really understand why apples came to be so important in this country. Well, you can date it back to um, simply when the Europeans were coming over to the new world. One of the traditions in the old world in Europe, of course, was hard cider. It goes back to the early days in Spain. Um, Hard cider was a commodity. And when they came to the new world, hard cider was such a staple standard item that, that anybody that wanted to have a farm and produce something that was valuable wanted to have those cider varieties. And that's where Johnny Appleseed comes in because, you know, despite how Disney painted him, which I still love the cartoon. It's so sad that a lot of kids these days have no idea what I talk about (laughs) the Disney cartoon about Johnny Appleseed. I, I always tell them, please go try to find it. Please try to buy it and just watch it. It's just very quaint and very sweet, but Johnny Appleseed in his time during the civil war, uh, while the war was raging, you know, he, he was interested in spreading apples and, and um, growing apples. And it wasn't just so that people could have apples um, to eat fresh or, you know, make a pie once in a while. He was interested in spreading orchards of cider varieties. And when you talk about the hard cider varieties, and I don't, you know, your listeners could be varied, but you cannot just uh, plant any apple seed and, and know what you're going to get. So Johnny Appleseed would, or John Chapman would go around to the cider mills um, in that time and would collect seeds. And the seeds that he planted in these orchards, he knew that they were going to be what's called a feral apple or a wild apple variety, which means it has no name. But what a lot of people don't realize is wild and feral apples are the oftentimes the best apples to make hard cider because they have a lot of tannins, they have a lot of acidity, they could have some bitter characteristics. And when you're a good cider maker, those are the characteristics you look for. So that's what he was doing is he was planting homestead orchards so that when the settlers came West, they would happen across his orchards and they would purchase that land from him. So not only was he this, this apple spreader of, of, you know, getting these cider apples out there, he knew that those homesteaders were going to want that commodity and he also made some money on the side in real estate. So he was actually a really intelligent, um, despite being very quirky, he was a really intelligent person. I love this history lesson. I I adore history. I do but too. I, do, <laughs> I want to bring this point up because this is something a lot of a lot of people are you know familiar with. You take a seed from a vegetable mm-hmm. and plant it, or a flower seed, etc. And I've had a lot of people who have said, you know, well, I'm going to just take a avocado seed. And I know we're talking about apples, but avocados are a fruit, sure. you know, or a peach pit. And I'm going to plant that and I'm going to grow my peach tree from that. And then I don't have to buy a tree, but right. same thing with apple seed is, is not understanding that you're not going to get from the seed, mm-hmm. the exact same tree. It's not going to produce the exact same peach that you're growing from the pit or right. in this instance with apples. So mm-hmm. 
do you want to just dive into that a little bit sure. as to why it can be a good thing, why it can be a bad thing, kind of pros and cons. And like you're talking, like sure. he knew it would be a cider variety, but kind of how how that works. So if you take an apple seed that you've taken from an apple, that's a specific variety, mm-hmm. a little bit of the, um, not the DNA, but how that works in plant world, uh, what, what is happening there that would make it not be the same as the apple. And then also talking a little bit about grafting, which is how uh-huh. you do get the same variety right. and are, and are able to, you know, perpetuate varieties that way that stay true. Sure. Well, once when I started out on this journey seven years ago, um, I had grown up in a region in central California, up in the eastern foothills below the Sequoia National Forest. And back in those times, there was a pretty vibrant, you know, family owned commercial orchard um, industry, but it was like high mountain orchards and it was just family run, multi generational. It was wonderful. And every autumn season, we had this apple festival where apples were celebrated and baked with and made into apple burritos and apple beer, which of course was just sparkling cider. But of course, as kids, we were like, yeah, we get to have apple beer once a year. Um, But learning, you know, being around that as a child and of course, watching Disney's Johnny Appleseed made me really curious about the history of apples. And, you know, I, I kind of diverged from that a bit when I went to college and became a graphic designer and a teacher. But obviously later in my life, um, really learning from some really important people like Dave Benscotter of The Last Apple Project, who's over here in um, Eastern Washington, and John Bunker, who is the um, founder of Fedco Trees back in Maine. And I've actually gotten to meet and uh, befriend Mr. Dan Bussey of the the encyclopedia that I mentioned. These are the gentlemen that really just opened my eyes. And I was just so shocked and could not believe not only um, how apple cultivation has been over over time, but how little we really know, how little the common person knows about how apples grow. So when you buy yourself an apple, let's say at the store, let's say you have a Granny Smith apple, and this was the tastiest Granny Smith apple you ever had, and you're convinced that you're going to grow some of these seeds because you want to have these Granny Smiths to make pies in the future. So when you think of a seed from any apple, um, any apple variety, it doesn't matter, that seed and, and I like to compare it to humans, which I know is kind of strange, but this is what I talk about when I host my workshop here every fall. We get thousands of people out here and I educate them about the same thing. But you think of an apple seed like a child. So you've got the mother and the father and they, let's say they cross pollinate <clears throat> and they create a little baby apple, little baby human. So the seed in the apple is what contains all of the past heritage, past genetics um, of that particular apple. So while the apple that you ate was a Granny Smith, all of the genetics of its past that basically came to making this Granny Smith are in that seed. So when you go to plant that seed in the ground and that seed is going to grow you an apple tree, it is going to be an apple tree. But once it starts to produce fruits, it might look similar to a Granny Smith it might have a similar shape, but I would say, and actually this is a statistic that I have researched 80% of the time, a feral apple tree or a wild apple tree, which is an apple tree that grows from seed are not going to be good apples. They're going to be mushy. They might be bitter. They might be um, tart. They might be small. They're just not going to be an ideal apple. So only 20% of the time, when a seed grows into an apple tree, will those apples actually be something that somebody wants to basically cultivate and keep around? 
And then that's when you enter into grafting. So it doesn't matter. Um, I've had a lot of people, I've gotten into arguments with people on Facebook that you can, you know, save, let's say, Honeycrisp apple seeds and you can grow Honeycrisp apple trees from these seeds. But it's so hard to get people to understand that your tree that's going to be produced from that seed is not going to be a Honeycrisp apple tree. It's going to be a wild feral apple. It might have some characteristics of the Honeycrisp, but it's also going to be displaying characteristics from all of the previous cross-pollination that has taken place in the history of the genetics of that apple. So they're very much like humans. And I know that sounds strange, but Cameron Peace, he's over at Washington State University. He is a literally an apple geneticist. And he has mapped out a essentially an apple genome of the apple. And it's really fascinating to see that they all basically delineate back to two original apples, kind of like a pyramid. And what we have now, all these apples that exist in the world are because of the cross-pollination, the continuation of apples basically being eaten and being grown from seed or being grafted. So that's a good reason why when you drive around, in, um, like back in the country, if you're going up in the mountains or if you come across... Uh, you know, a gravel pit or just somewhere really random that you see this apple tree growing. And I have a really good example of one that I discovered out on Lake Ponderay up here in North Idaho is if you see an apple tree growing on the side of the road, people think that somebody planted it there. But in reality, somebody was driving down the road or maybe there was a train conductor on a train 80 years ago that ate a nice, delicious apple for lunch. And he just pitched that uh, apple core out the window for the deer. And those apple seeds took root and they grew an apple tree. And so you will see this in a lot of places. Green Bluff is a region over here in uh, Eastern Washington. That's a perfect example. They have historical cultivated, um, you know, named variety orchards there. But if you drive around in the foothills beyond there, you will actually find feral apple trees growing along the roadside everywhere. You know, whether a bird ate the apple and then pooped the seeds out somewhere along the way. Um, so, Apple growing is quite different from just having heirloom seeds from an envelope that you get from, let's say, a tomato plant. Um, and if you do come across one of those amazing feral apples that has the most amazing qualities you've ever found, you're going to want to be sure to uh, get some scion from that tree in the winter so that you can actually graft and replicate that variety and save those genetics for future growing. So for those who are brand new to the, the world of orchard and grafting, what is a scion? So scion wood, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will probably kick themselves after I say this. And I kind of kicked myself when I realized um, what I'd been doing just all the years of having an orchard. And, you know, you go out in the wintertime and you're doing your selective pruning just to shore up your orchard and make sure everything's healthy and you don't have any strange growth. So what scion essentially is, is scion wood is the young wood of the fruit tree, apple trees, peach trees, you know, you name it, any kind of fruit tree, the young wood that grows from the previous season. So perfect example is last year, we took the drip system out of my orchard because our soil, while it's really nice loamy soil, it also is almost too well draining. So we've been trying to amend it to retain some more of that um, water at the surface for the apple trees to really flourish. And so we actually went and changed everything to top watering like rainbirds. And we got the most growth last season that we've gotten in seven years of just having drips. So I was really pleased to see how much um, growth we got. And so when I walk out in my orchard, 
In fact, we have a, a workshop this Saturday, so I have to go out and prune some scion, but we're also expecting a snowstorm and it's been really wet, so I can't really go out there just yet. But anybody that has fruit trees, if they pruned their fruit tree last winter or early spring, then through that following growing season, their tree has naturally grown out a lot of new wood, a lot of new growth, young limbs, young branches. That is what is scion wood. That's considered scion wood. And when you're talking about grafting, you do not want the seeds of the apple that you are seeking to grow. You want the scion wood because the scion wood is the only way to 100% replicate the genetics of the apple that you are going after. And that would be that one year wood. So using two or three-year-old wood, you can see the growth rings on the limbs. You don't want older wood. You really want to go after that, that one-year-old wood. And ideally, it should be about the diameter of a pencil because a lot of the rootstock that is sold commercially is about that same diameter. So you really want those two pieces of wood between the scion and the rootstock to really um, kind of go together seamlessly and, and have that same size. Okay. So I have a question for you because this was something we were chatting about briefly before we started recording. And I'm like, sure. okay, we, we need to do, re we got to record this part. Cause I know <laughs> I'm going to have questions. So let me save sure. it. So, um, my dad's what we call the homestead, which is where, when they traveled out here from North Carolina in the early forties, when he was a child, this is where they, they settled and they grew up. And when they got there, there was already existing apple trees. Mm -hmm. So of course, you know, we're moving forward. I'm assuming these apple trees are about a hundred years old, you know, give or take. Sure. They have not been maintained. They probably haven't been pruned in over 50 years, but they're still growing. They're still alive and they're still producing slightly, which is pretty impressive for these old trees that have not had any maintenance done to them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But because they have not had any pruning whatsoever, would it be advisable to wait until this coming winter? Cause we're, we're in April right now at the time of this recording mm -hmm. um, and do some pruning to encourage new growth, to get a graft off it next year. So what I would suggest, first of all, now you said that the trees were on this property prior to them arriving, correct? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing that they were probably planted. We're in Western Washington. Mm -hmm. And so we were a later developed state, of course, as you look at right. you know, the history of the, of the union. So I'm, I'm going to guess that they were probably planted somewhere in the early 1900s would be my, my guesstimation. Sure. So, so a little bit of um, history about Washington is, and I gleaned all this information from Mr. Dave Ben Scotter, of course, of the lost apple project, because it is kind of a, an important fact uh, or point to make is when, when Fort Walla Walla was opened up, that is when all the nurserymen started to pour into um, the West here, into Washington. And so what's really interesting is, and this was in the late, uh, you know, late 1800s, when the fort was established, it made it safer, of course, for the pioneers and the homesteaders to come West. And naturally, the first thing they wanted to do was plant their orchards because apples are just one of those things you, you wish you planted it 10 years ago. And I've always been told, you know, the first time that you purchase land, it doesn't matter if your house hasn't been built or, you know, you haven't even put in a well, hopefully you've got some sort of a water source, but get those apple trees in the ground because they do take such a long time to start producing. So I would be interested to know, um, you would want to identify, first of all, if those trees are in fact a cultivated known variety, or if they could by chance be feral or wild apples. So the first thing that you want to look at is the base of the tree. Does it have one large solid trunk? Or does it have a lot of, um, you know, outshoots that come out of the ground and that's what's forming that apple tree? 
Okay. And what does that tell us? That would tell you whether it is a cultivated named variety from a nursery or if it's feral. And if it's feral, that would mean that those, those trees grew from an orchard, from a remnant orchard that existed, you know, prior to them growing. So if a homesteader came into that, onto that land, and let's say they planted a, a homestead orchard of some keeping apples, maybe some cider varieties, and let's say that that original orchard, um, you know, has not, has not remained, but you had the deer and you have the birds that are eating that fruit and dropping the seeds, um, a lot of times people will see these old trees growing on homesteads, but they weren't actually planted. They were put there um, via an animal with their, their poo. And so it's really important to know whether it's wild or not, because if it is wild, it doesn't have a name and you really don't know what you have. You could literally name it yourself. Actually, you could give it a name, <clears throat> but if it's a cultivated variety, you'll know a lot more about the genetics. Okay. So I'm assuming if it's a single big fat trunk, then yes. that is a cultivated variety. If it's more wild multiple, then mm -hmm. that would be an indication it would be a feral. Yeah. And a lot of times what'll happen is um, a feral tree might grow. It might grow a single trunk, but it would be very tall, very spindly. And it wouldn't look like a typical tree that you think somebody would have planted like from a nursery with a large trunk. The other important thing, of, of course, you'd want to look for is the grafting union. Um, it's, they're not as easy to spot on really, uh, old trees, but the grafted union would typically be down towards the base of the tree above the soil line. Mm -hmm. And that right there obviously is going to be your first indicator that it is a known variety. Um, and the, the funny thing is wild varieties can grow with a single trunk, but they will look much more wild. Um, and you know, either way I've actually collected scion from feral apple trees that I've discovered out in the woods, um, at old homesteads. And I've also collected scion from known varieties, but we don't know what the name is because it got, it got lost. And that's why the Lost Apple Project uh, was established because they're trying to find lost varieties that were thought to be extinct from our old homesteading um, ancestors in this area. That is I'm just like blown away, like by how much we have lost as a civilization, oh, yes. like in the last hundred years. I mean, there's the, the more, the mm -hmm. more you learn, the more you realize how much deeper it goes. Of, well, of how how much we really know. It, yeah, it, it, I don't know why I thought, you know, like that it would almost go the opposite, but the more I know, the more I realize that <laughs> the more like that we, yeah, the more that we have lost, um, but have the potential, thankfully, to at least recover some of it or at least stop sure. the, mm -hmm. the loss, you know, to, yes. to kind of be, this is our, our light in the sand. Like we're going to, you know, save these, and preserve this knowledge and, and these things, which is oh yeah, a lot of homesteading and lots of different varieties really encompasses right. that that thing. Um, and going back to the trees that your your father yeah. had that are still there. So regardless of if it's feral or not, I think the important thing would be: Are the apples good? Like, what are they good for? A lot of people tell me, "Hey, you know, my grandma lives on this property and she's been there for eighty years, but there was this big tree there before she even moved there." And and I get these kind of calls all the time, and they say what is this variety? And I said, you know, there are thousands, you know, there used to be 14,000 or more varieties of apples. And I think now we're down to only 4,000. And that, that number keeps dropping because apples just fall out of favor with people. I mean, I've got apples growing here that, that people would not ever touch if they were at the grocery store. They're ugly, they're unsightly looking. But the sad thing is the flavor inside that, that apple, the flesh itself is so exquisite. It's, it's genetics and characteristics that we have never had the pleasure of experiencing. So 
if your apple trees produce really good apples for, and, and you don't know the name of them and that's okay. I would say the first thing that you'd want to do to save that genetic um, makeup of those apples is yes, you would want to go and do some very select pruning because those trees are older. You don't really know what the internal health is, but um, if they seem to be a pretty vigorous tree and they're healthy, you could do a little bit of um, pruning. I'd say no more than a third or maybe even less just because you know that it's going to send off new fresh growth this season. And then next winter, you can actually prune off that young scion wood and that's going to be your wood that you're going to graft with. And then you have saved those genetics and, you know, you could even pass those on to your kids. I have people all the time that say they've got kids and grandkids and, you know, they want me to graft apple trees with this mystery wood from these old apples that they want their children to have because they know that it's attached to their great, great grandparents in some way. It's, it's pretty wonderful. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's really exciting. I'm excited to see this, this part with the fruit, because I have that with our Tar Heel pole green bean seed. And then we have a Shelly bean that we call an October bean. And That's those cool. two strains have been passed down, you know, for many, many generations within my family, you know, uh-huh. well over a hundred years. And so I do, I, I have that connection. They're very special to me. My kids mm-hmm. have that connection now. I, the The taste is exquisite to anything I've ever had store-bought as well. So there's that part, but there's right. that emotional tie, you know, this tie back to, to my grandparents and my great-grandparents, you know, th- that you get. Oh, yes. uh, that I don't just get if I buy a packet of seed, you know, from, from the store, the, the, you know, fed, um, farmer's store, that type of thing. Right. And so I'm excited to experience this or at least try with these apple trees that are still, still growing over there and cultivating them. And from what I remember as a kid eating them, I don't spend as much time over there now as an adult. Right. They were a thinner skinned, um, yellow, kind of yellowish, that pale green, yellow apple. Mm-hmm. So they weren't, they weren't a blush. They weren't a red, you know, that type of thing. But I'm trying right. to recall like I remember eating them, but I'm trying to recall texture. Um, well, were they, uh, do you remember if it was like a summer apple? Because there is a couple of apple varieties that are summer apples. Um, and they are really, really prevalent here in the West, up in the Northwest here. And that's the, the yellow transparent or the Lodi apple. Those are a sauce apple. Um, the homesteaders here in the West planted those because they made a lot of sauce, a lot of yeah. apple butter. Um, and the bad thing, the only bad thing about them was they just didn't have a shelf life. So it was definitely not a keeper. It was just a sauce apple. And, you know, as soon as they were ripe, you had to get those off the tree and immediately process them because they just don't last very long. And they the flesh is not really a crisp, uh, sprightly it's flesh. More it's pretty mealy kind of, yes, then that, yeah. that could very well be a yellow transparent. It might be a yellow transparent. Anyhow, I'll have to. Yeah, I know I need to go over there and, and do some pruning, anyways, and then and then see what what comes out this summer. And, yeah, uh, but that actually brought me back to I had a couple questions sure. that I wanted to ask, and two storage varieties because that is yes. something that is very like it's very near and dear to my heart. That's something I want to to further cultivate and bring in. So, what are some of the more? Um, I guess I'm going to say well-known because those are going to be points of accessibility for people who are listening to this of storage varieties specifically. Mm -hmm. Well, um, here on our preservation orchard, we've got probably about a hundred different varieties of apples. Now Um, it's not a very large, I wouldn't say it's a large orchard because I've been very careful about curating what varieties I do want to have here because a lot of it is about educating. First of all, Um, preservation, of course, because these apples, it really is more of an apple museum, what we have here. It's it's a living history museum is what I call it, because 
so many of these apples, they all have a history. They all have such, you know, unique stories about them. And so when people come out here, I really want them to understand like this orchard serves a purpose. Like these apples are here because I want you to understand that if you're going to be a homesteader, which we are, we have our animals, we have our orchard, we have a big garden, we do all these things to try to just be a little bit more um, self-sustaining here. And we do a lot of bartering with our neighbors, of course, which I believe is the the way of the future here. (laughs) Um, Storing apples are amazing because like you said, it's going to save you so much time in the kitchen where you don't really have to process them. Um, The storing apples are the keepers as they would call them in the old times. These keepers, you would literally just need to be aware of what their season is, whether it was like a summer apple. There aren't a lot of summer varieties. I would say most varieties ripen, you know, September to October. And the varieties that I have that are keepers here at our preservation orchard right now, um, they don't really finish. Well, realistically, they'll tell you when they should be picked, which would usually be mid to late October, which is cutting it pretty close in North Idaho because of our climate here. But um, one, for instance, is called the Arkansas Black. And the Arkansas Black, it's a beautiful apple. It has a very dark flesh, and that's why it gets that name. The Arkansas Black has been prized for many, many generations as just a keeper. And the interesting thing about the Arkansas Black is that when you pick this apple, the flavor is actually not even developed to the point where you would enjoy it. It's, it's not the most flavorful at the time that it's picked it actually develops its flavor over time. So you're going to pick these Arkansas black apples. And a lot of times the old timers would take some old newspaper or just some sort of craft paper and they would wrap their apples, the Arkansas black apples in just newspaper. And that would kind of help protect them from, you know, just the elements or oxygen or whatever. And you put them in your root cellars and those apples would literally keep until the next summer and you go to eat one of those apples and they're crisp and the flavors developed and they are a, a wonderful keeper because they maintain and they actually develop into a better flavor over time, sort of like wine. Now, is that something that you'll see typically in most apples or just specific strains as far as flavor development after it's been picked? I think it's particular genetics. Um, so now in the older heirloom varieties, I would like to say that the big difference between heirloom varieties and the commercial varieties that you see at the grocery store are heirloom varieties came about because someone somewhere at some point discovered a feral apple tree, picked an apple, tried that apple and discovered all of its wonderful characteristics. And when they discovered that apple, they decided they needed to keep it around so they could share it or maybe cultivate it and start selling it at nurseries. So the heirloom apples were not developed in a lab in a a Petri dish. And I don't say Petri dish because it's some, you know, genetically modified, um, you know, uh, process. Perfect example would be the Nero apple that was discovered on the Palouse here by the Lost Apple Project. Dave Benscotter came across this, this wily looking old apple tree out on the Palouse um, at this, uh, the Buttes out there. And they actually sent um, these apples to an apple identifier and they believed it was this, this apple called the Nero that was thought to be extinct. So they were trying to replicate this variety as fast as they could because the mother tree, the original tree was just not in the greatest shape. And now they have this, this responsibility of saving these genetics. So Cameron Peace and, you know, the, the scientists and laboratories over at Washington State University, they do a lot of work with apples and apple, uh, the commercial apple industry. And so they were actually able to take a single bud off of that Nero tree and develop that bud in a Petri dish 
and we're able to grow a tree from it, which wow. is really, really fascinating. And because it's the wood of the tree, it's going to preserve the genetics. It wasn't a seed. It was the actual wood of the tree. And I actually have one of those trees in my orchard. It's, it's really cool to show people this tree and say, this was essentially born in a Petri dish, but it wasn't, you know, some big mad scientist kind of process. It was literally a bud that was taken off the tree and it was grown under a laboratory's, you know, um, observation just for keeping it pure and keeping it safe. And they were actually able to replicate those trees. So um, it, it, it is such a fascinating, deep subject. It's, it's hard to stay contained and to talk about all the things. But oh, there's so many, there's so many things like we've almost been on here close to, well, I think about an hour I lost track because we just got talking and I'm, I'm so <laughs> excited and enamored by this subject. But I'm also really excited that you are going to be at the Modern Home Sitting Conference for our very first conference, but you're going to be teaching on this because as you said, there's so many different faucets and nuances and history and like really oh, yeah. cool things to learn and to preserve. And like how cool that this tree like that we thought was almost lost and extinct and they were able to find one. And now it's not like, you know, there there's mm -hmm. been that it can, you know, be saved and just so many things that make my homesteading heart beat extra hard and fast in a oh, good way. Yeah, me too. I, I yeah. have a good soul. And when I, when I got onto this, this mission and this is like my life's goal now is just to preserve these and share them with people and, and teach them how apples actually do grow and why it's important. I mean, I, I do believe is my firm belief that the apple is the American fruit, like apples in America go together. Um, it's one of the first things they brought over on the boats was just, you know, barrels full of young apple trees because they knew that it was such a commodity, not just for cider, but just for survival. I mean, there's so many things like Johnny Appleseed in the cartoon says, there's so many things, you know, that a homesteader can do with apples. You can pickle the apples, you can dry them, dehydrate them. Um, you know, there was even a story about homesteaders drying their apples outside and actually encouraging bees or yellow jackets to land on their, their apples to help to suck out all the, uh, the moisture, all the water content so that they would dry faster. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. But yeah, true. Like that could, yeah. They didn't have dehydrators back then. So they had to find unique ways to Find yeah, a fact, after process. Yeah. And depending on volume, like we here in Western Washington, we especially in the fall can not have enough sun. Like August, we're pretty good. But as you said, a lot of varieties aren't ready to be picked in August. So my my grandfather, my dad's dad, he actually would created racks around the stovepipe of their wood mm -hmm. stove. And nice. he would, he would just, they would do a lot of their dehydrating there because it's obviously simple. it's a heat source. Yeah. Just because we don't have the solar heat usually right. in the fall in order no. to dehydrate. So that was his solution and, and worked well. Unfortunately, there's, there's no pictures of it and it was it's long sad. gone, you know, by the time, yeah, by the time I, I came around, but I'm like, oh, you know, my dad tells stories and I'm like, oh man, I, I, I wish I had, had seen that, but there's I write them down. All, yeah. Well, like you said, there's all different ways you, with the environment that you have to mm -hmm. make things work. And so maybe it is the bees and the yellow jackets that are helping to do that in, in that dehydrated form. Well, well back I am, in those times, they didn't really have a lot of other methods, you know, the, yeah. the wood stoves, but if it was summertime or fall, you know, going into fall, it was just a quick, easy way that they knew one way that worked. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. And so Nikki, I'm super excited because I know you're going to be doing some going more into actually, you know, grafting mm -hmm. and teaching on this at the conference. And will you also have some varieties available I for people to purchase at what we're, the conference? What we're going to 
what we're going to do is I'm actually working to put together um, maybe five or six different collections of these uh, heritage varieties that would be ideal for any aspiring homesteader. Um, grafting trees is a pretty painstaking process. It takes a lot of patience, a lot of skill. So to graft a large enough amount of trees to sell at the conference, I don't think it'd be feasible, especially if you guys get the, uh, the, um, the, the numbers that you're expecting on participation, which I'm so excited about. But I do believe we are going to have these collections available for sale. And then the following spring, they will be essentially ready for people to come locally, at least to uh, pick up here at our orchard, um, their collections. So if they wanted a keeper's collection and, uh, you know, maybe that's all they want for their first season of planting, they would order the keeper's collection and that's what they're going to put in in the spring. Um, you know, once it warms up here in, in I North Idaho, I mean, planting season for us isn't until June 1st. So, but, uh, but you can plant apples before that. So I think we're going to have those collections available for people to, to reserve and, and uh, get ready for. Okay. Well, there we have it guys. If you're going to be at conference, which I hope you are, you can go and take one of Nikki's sessions. Um, and we were focusing a lot on the heritage apple varieties today and, and just, just starting to get into the nuances of grafting to mm -hmm. keep those alive and, and that. And so she is going to do a session on that, but you're also going to be doing a session on for homesteaders with apples specifically in your farm and ways to create an income beyond just the typical, you know, selling your extra eggs, which is great. Don't get me right. wrong, but you're going to dive into that, which I think is really exciting because as you're saying here, like you, you do teaching workshops where you're preserving this and then you guys have this heritage stock. Like there's a lot of different ways that I think as homesteaders, we, a lot of times just comes to mind, like, well, I'm going to sell my extra eggs or I'm going to sell my beef or, you know, that type of thing, but there's a lot more to it there. So I'm excited for that session as well, but also the option to get my hands on some of your guys' stock. So <laughs> people will definitely want to go and check out your sessions at the conference, but also your booth. I know you guys are going to have a booth there. And yes. for those who grabbed a VIP ticket, you are going to actually have some of your apples in dessert at the VIP dinner. We're trying for it. It depends on the season. Like I said, Idaho can be really crazy. Um, and you just never know if what your pollination season is going to look like. Right now we're expecting snow. So the apples might be waiting to come out of their dormancy. Um, so we're crossing our fingers, but we will definitely be using heritage varieties in the cooking for the VIP dinner for sure. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm laughing because you're North Idaho. I'm Northwestern Washington. And it's funny <laughs> because you guys are a lot colder. You get oh, colder yes. temperatures than we do by far, but typically my warm weather planting date is Memorial weekend. So we're not actually that far off on not our planting dates, off. which is really funny. I'm just not as as cold as you in the winter, we just kind of stay in that 40, low, low forties for mm -hmm. a lot longer. And we're just not well, typically warm nice. enough <laughs> soil. Yeah. It is much better than, than twenties or teens. 20s. I have to say. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but it does make our planting dates very, very similar, uh, which is very interesting. So I'm super excited to see you and to learn. Me and too. now I need to go and see if I can do some light pruning to encourage, <laughs> encourage that growth for next year's harvest. So I'm so glad that we had a oh, chance yes. to hop on here. And thanks so much for coming on, Nikki. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so excited for the conference. This this is something that I think my my life has kind of pointed me in this path. And I think just the fact that the conference is coming this year is just such perfect timing. Yeah, it is very interesting to see 
the beauty of hindsight or looking at things and, and converging uh, yes. the same thing, like being able to, to look back at so many things and, and seeing all the different things that, that helped to point to make this all come together, not only just within my own life, but mm-hmm. the people who are going to be presenting and, and teaching and the, the things that had to happen for them to get to this point. And then we all get to come together. It's, it's going to be really special. So thank I you for wait. being a part of it. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. Can't wait. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did and are excited to try some of these heritage historical apple varieties, both hopefully you get the chance to taste some of them, but growing them on your own homestead as well, or if you are out and about and maybe you discover a lost feral apple tree. I part and I'm we are just getting ready at the time of this recording. Um, the apple tree should begin to start blossoming in oh probably about mm, probably about four weeks from now. So I am going to be keeping my eye out for any apple blossoms that I see up in the hills or in areas where I know there haven't been homes for a really long period of time. It'll be a little bit like a treasure hunt now that I know a little bit more on what to look for and what those trees can mean. This also brings me to our verse of the week. And I have to say, I went and looked up. There are several different Bible verses that talk on the apple of the eye. And I thought it was very fitting because we are talking about apples, right? But also the the definition or really the meaning of the apple of the eye. Because probably most of you, like myself, I've heard that statement made before. I've heard that analogy or I've heard the Bible verses that say the apple of the eye. But the apple of the eye, like what is that really mean like when you sit and think about that and the apple of the eye is something that is referred to as you feel very strongly about with an infection very highly regarded um something that is like a treasure to you that you care a lot about it's very precious that is the apple of the eye and of course that apple of our eye is the very center of our eye. And of course, our eye is a very important thing um, to us. And the center of your eye is also something that, that's very close to you, right? It, I mean, it's hard to get any closer than your actual eyeball. <laughs> obviously, when you get something in your eye, like, oh my gosh, right? And so what I love is when we look at some of these verses that talk about the apple of the eye is talking about God keeping us as something that he treasures, something that he sees as very valuable. And he's He's keeping us as such. One of those is Psalms 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. We've got Proverbs 7, 2. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching is the apple of your eye. So we see it in two different contexts, both as God keeping us close as the apple of his eye, like him holding us, thinking and viewing of us as something very precious and to be treasured. And in return, we are to look at the word of God and his teachings, and we are to hold those in a position as we would something that is the apple of our eye. So it's a a relationship, it's an exchange, and both of us are keeping uh, parts of the other, right? as the apple of our eyes. So hopefully, whenever you see an apple or an apple tree, 
you will be reminded to keep the word of God as a treasured thing in your life. But also remember that God looks at you as the apple of his eye and you are very treasured and something much sought after of great value to God as the apple of his eye. So I found that very comforting and uplifting as well as very fitting beings we were talking about apples in today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Remember to check out American Blossom Linens and use coupon code PIONEERINGTODAY20. That's PIONEERINGTODAY20 for 20% off your order. And I hope that we get to see you at the conference. You'll definitely want to stop in and tell Nikki hi. And I did clarify with her after we were done recording the episode that you'll be able to order at conference. You'll be able to stop by the booth and you can order some of the um, starter packages that she was talking about with the heirloom graphs. And even if you can't pick them up in Idaho, because I know myself, I am driving over from Washington State. I want to get one of them as well, but I won't be able to go back in the spring and pick them up from her. And she said, yes, you can order at conference, but then they could be shipped to you. She's not doing online ordering. She's only going to be doing it for people who are at the conference, but you can order them at conference if you are driving from out of state, such as myself, or maybe flying in, and then they can be shipped to you the following spring when they're ready. So just wanted to preface that. And I look forward to being back here with you next week. Blessings and mason jars for now, my friends. <music>